Executive Breakthroughs Podcast with your host, Jason Troy, executive coach and best-selling author. Get game-changing strategies and tactics from the world's most successful executives and entrepreneurs about how they build and grow eight, nine, and 10-figure businesses, hire, manage, and develop A-level talent, create a culture to skyrocket success, build an extraordinary network out of influencers, and so much more. Stay tuned for mistakes you can skip and strategies you can steal, because stealing pens and post-it notes is for amateurs. It's time for another massive breakthrough, Executive Breakthroughs with Jason Troy. Hello and welcome to another episode of Executive Breakthroughs. Today on the show, I have Ron Nash joining me. He's the CEO and chairman of Pivot3 in Austin. He's got 30 plus years of fantastic experience working alongside industry titans such as Ross Perot, and you remember him running for president, Mort Meyerson, and many others. And he's also been a board member, a venture capitalist, and he's an avid art collector. And you can look at the show notes and check out his art collection. He, you know, he's been a corporate officer that's completed IPOs with Perot Systems and Rubicon, which is a part of Cerner now, and also been a part of companies that have been acquired like Vendavo and Lombardi Software, which is a part of IBM. And we're going to be covering his whole career on how you have to learn, grow, pivot, you know, work with mentors, how do you work in really sticky situations and end up on top, um, how do you turn things around when the wheels have completely gone off, you know, what are blind spots that you really need to watch out for? You know, if you are a board member, how do you, how do they often get off track and what do you need to do to stay on track? And really the next last one is how to model after other people's your Tony Robbins talk about modeling after success. So we're going to talk about that and how you should do it. So without further ado, let's get right into the show. Hello, this is uh, Jason Troy, and I have a fantastic guest here with me today, Ron Nash, and he's the CEO and chairman of Pivot3. And he has a bio that is so long that if I read it to you, we'd be here probably for the next hour. And so I'll put that in the show notes, and as well, you can check that on with LinkedIn. And he has a lot of wisdom, knowledge, and we're going to really get inside of where he came from, who he is now, you know, how he manages and leads other people, and a lot of other fantastic insights. So, Ron, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here, and I'm uh Glad that the audience is showing up and uh, hope I can be helpful and they can learn something today. I'm sure they're going to learn a lot today. You know, so one of the questions that I, I want to understand is kind of you growing up. So how did you grow up? Where did you grow up? Just give, I think, the listeners an idea of, kind of a little bit of your background. I, I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, in that area. And I think formative wise, part of the formative of my experience goes back to my parents, as, as most everybody does. But my parents were each the first in their general families to graduate from high school. So, wow. I mean, there was a big difference. I mean, my both my grandfathers, one was an electronics technician and one was a lineman for uh, AT&T, the telephone company. So you see the nerd gene was kind of in there yes. from the start that weren't with technology. But nobody had ever had formal education. And both my parents just happened to have burning desires to get education. So they got out of high school. Mom uh, went to secretarial school, which was what women did a lot in those times for a year. And then my dad went into the military, got the GI Bill, and then married. And he and mom worked through, you know, getting him through college. And so putting him through college was something where they, mom worked in the day, they had paper routes in the morning and in the evening, dad went to school in the day, and I was born uh, when he was a freshman. So uh, they were carrying a kid around at that point in time. We lived in what today you would call the projects in federally subsidized housing in Atlanta. And so I, I come from that stock and I, and I see my grandparents and my parents and my siblings and my kids, and I just see the difference that education makes in a family and the trajectory with which they do. And when you have that embedded deeply in you, and I, th and I think also for my parents, I'll grant that they had a burning desire to succeed far and away above what anybody around them had done. And I think where did I, that come that, from? 
I I don't know because I I I I, I just think they are both individual people. When I when I look at their siblings and their parents and all, somehow they both got this gene of just this, you know, intense desire to achieve and succeed. And I think they passed it along to their kids. And so that's part and parcel for them. It's a great gift that I was given by my parents. So how did you get in the technology route? Is it, I mean, obviously you can see the heritage and the nerd heritage mm-hmm, there, mm-hmm. but is that, is that one of the reasons why you decided to go down the route and um, get education wise to go into technology? Yeah. Or? I mean, my father was a electrical engineer. So, you know, we had that. And in uh, Georgia, Georgia Tech at that time was the preeminent university education. And I was good in school in all subjects pretty much. But math was different. There were so few people that were really good in math. And math was easy to me. Now, also, you know, I mean, math was great. I enjoyed it. But I didn't have a passion necessarily for it. I really liked writing and some other things. But math was so easy. And it was it was evident to me by people telling me and teachers and parents and such saying that I was distinctively good in math. So I, I, you ought to go into the thing where you're, you know, the, the tip of the spear, where, where you're the best in the world or have a chance to be one of the best in the world. So I think that led me into technology. And so after you got out of school, why don't you take me into getting your first first job? Like, well, you- uh, circuitous route in that I got out of uh, undergraduate school with an engineering degree and then I went in the uh, Army. Uh, and so I was in the uh, infantry, about as far away from technology as yes. you can think. Here we are in uh, brute force and brawn and, and that type of stuff. And as an infantryman, I was uh, lucky enough to get the best assignment in the United States Army for an infantryman, which is in Washington, D.C. at Fort Myer. Uh, there is a unit called the Old Guard of the Army. It was actually George Washington's first infantry unit. It traces wow. its heritage to it. And today, although it's a formal infantry unit, it does the ceremonial duties mm-hmm. at Arlington National Cemetery and the White House. So when you're doing a full honor funeral, burying one of our heroes, they did that. When uh, some prime minister comes to visit the president and you have troops line up on the White House lawn, I got to do that. So as an infantryman, it's pretty cool when you can sleep in a bed with sheets and have a warm shower every day. That's a blessing for someone in the infantry. Uh, but coming out of that, I had expected after my military service just to go back to Atlanta. Uh, Georgia Tech had a placement uh, office that would help alumni get jobs. And I expected I would go back after that and get jobs. And actually, someone called me in my quarters one night. It was a recruiter for Ross Perot's company, EDS. And Ross was hiring lots of military people during that time because a lot of talented people were coming through the military. And they called and said, would you you know, like to come in and talk for a job? The answer was, sure. You know, they were the only people that called. And, you know, it was pretty easy. And I talked to them. And uh, Ross seemed to be a pretty magnetic type of uh, personality. And his company was doing well. And um, they offered me a job. They offered uh, several cities that I could go to to work. And I chose to go to uh, New York City and Manhattan. So for a little Southern boy, wow. this was a big change. You know, Why I did just, you pick New York out of all that? I, I picked it because I thought it was the toughest competition. It was working in the brokerage industry in the financial district uh, on Wall Street in New York. And to me, that kind of seemed to be the top of the heat. You know, if I wanted to compete, why didn't I go to the major And leagues? this goes back to your family, right? Because mm-hmm. they continually took it to the next level and tried to get outside of their comfort zone and press that up. That's right. Just try something new and try to see. And I mean, New York was different for a you know somebody that had grown up in the Deep South. It, <laughs> it, is. it was quite it different. Is. And you had to learn different ways to do things. And you had to kind of adopt a different style and persona just to get along. And it really broadens you. Like you say, it challenges you, but it broadens you. I mean, there's nothing more fun than learning. I mean, there's nothing more fun than seeing something that, you don't know how to do and then figuring it out and you figure out how to do it. I mean, to me, that's so fantastic and so thrilling. And when you go in a new culture, it, uh, it challenges it. Later in my career, I moved to London. I was running the European operations for another Rossboro company. And same thing with the cultural differences overseas. You know, there was business, which was challenging, but then you put this other low layer of culture and heritage and such like that 
uh, on top of it, it made it more challenging. But when you can do it, it's much more satisfying. And how did you end up meeting Rost? I mean, when did you meet him personally or have any really interaction with him? At what point during your time in EDS? Uh, I think it during the uh, first part in the orientation. EDS was um, a services company. And if you think about services companies, they all need sort of evangelical type leadership because services companies are inherently trying to say to their customer, look, we can do this better than you can do it. Well, how can you do that? You can have smarter people, you can have automation, you can have tools, but essentially you can motivate your people better. And so in services companies, if you look at it, if they don't have highly motivated people, services companies are going to fail. I mean, nobody likes to, you know, nobody's going to have a services companies with people that are just kind of turning the crank and going through the motions. They want to have somebody that, gosh, I, I contract with those people because they have the greatest people. They're so, you know, excited about what they're doing. They're so talented. And Ross was good at that. And so at EDS, they had a multi-day new employee orientation session. I mean, it was almost And like, he was a part of the... He was part of it. It was like a pep rally at times, you know. I mean, in some ways, you know, you, some people would look askance at it and think, you know, this is a little, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid type stuff. But it was kind of thrilling at that time, you know. I'm thinking, gosh, here's a bunch of people that are going to, you know, just work hard every day and they're going to, you know, they're going to push themselves every day and push each other. It was a tough environment. They pushed each other to succeed, but it was fun. You know, what I, did I you learn that. from Rost at your time there? What are, what are some philosophies that you end up taking from him that really helped you on your journey? Well, I think one of the good, Ross is a good basic leader. He, he distinguishes in between leadership and management. And he, you know, he kind of talks about management being almost manipulative type stuff where leading is inspiring people. And so he's got the, he's got the stick down about leading people. He clears all the things out of the way that don't, that would impede you from being a success and then challenges you to be a success. He's all about energy. He's all about working. He's all about doing something. He trusts new people. He trusts young people. He gives you a chance to do, do things. I was doing things in my 20s that they never should have let a 20-year-old do. Like what I'm, were you doing that you during that time? Uh, well, I mean, I started out technical. I went into business. And then I ended up working for this guy, uh, Glenn Self, Dr. Glenn Self, that was a vice president. That was kind of the cleanup man. If anything in the company got messed up, you know, if there was a software development project that was – a year overdue. <laughs> you know, if there was a customer that was mad at them and was going to sue them, you know, after they tried to rescue it and all, this was like the get, you know, the big ugly that went in at the last resort yes. to clean things up. And he had just a, you know, a few people. He had three people working for him at the time. I was the fourth. Uh, and, uh, all of them had PhDs, but me. <laughs> and so <laughs> I came in and somehow they, they picked me to do that. And so I just got to do a lot of assignments with cleaning up a bunch of things. And so what it taught you is the kind of mistakes that people make in business and how to rectify them quickly and how to get action fast. And it was great experience. For what me. mistakes did at that time did you learn that people were making? I mean, what, what did really st stepped out for you? I think the thing over and over that I saw was that the, the people that were leading the effort that was in trouble, they weren't bad people. They weren't bad human beings. They weren't evil people. They weren't dumb people. They were really good people, but they just were focused on the wrong things. Typically, they had blinders on and they were focused on sub subset of it. Uh, my undergraduate degree in industrial engineering was about optimizing a system. And you learn when you optimize a system, you don't optimize each piece. You might have one piece working at a suboptimal way, but that makes the whole system throughput better. And these people just had blinders on, and they were kind of doing what their managers told them to do or their incentive program told them to do. They weren't just opening their view and saying, wait a minute, what am I doing for the whole company? Is this building a great company? Is this doing what's right for the customer? And they just didn't have that in mind. They were just following the thing. I um following the contract by the letter or something like that, rather than stepping back and saying, what, what do we really need to do here? What's right? And so when I got in these scrambles to clean things up, 
first thing that I had to do is just kind of sit back and take a big view and say, what's right to do? What's the right thing to do? And once you figure out the right thing to do, then you can figure out, okay, now in this system, how do I get this right thing done? Who has to do what? So who were your mentors, you know, and when you were growing up or during this time right now, I mean, who really made an impact on your life? Mm -hmm. Well, I think mentors change and and you always think, I mean, when I read about things, people talk about mentors and they talk about them as uh, people that are older, people that are more experienced. And when you're young, that's true. I mean, you're parents and your teachers and your ministers and your coaches and you know all these are your mentors you copy them and you emulate what they're doing you listen to what they say but you also observe what they're doing and i think both of those have equal input it's it's how they live as well as what they say but then as your career gets going you turn around to a different view or at least i came to a different view that i could have mentors that maybe work that worked for me, that were younger than me, that were less experienced than me, but they had particular skills that were better than me in a particular place. So where early in my career, I always looked upward for inspiration. Uh, as I got higher in the organization, it was easier to look downward for inspiration and see what my peers were doing or what people in my organizations were doing. And what taught you that? I mean, how did you figure out to take a look in a, in a new perspective? I think, I think it was just, I think once I got to be a CEO, you got, you got to be lonely is the wrong word because, you know, everybody kind of caters to a CEO, but there is some aloneness to being a CEO. There are things sometimes that you want to discuss that you don't really know where the audience is. You used to go to your boss and now you kind of don't have a boss, you know, and so you got to figure out another outlet where you can have discussion and where you can have give and take and everything like that. And so you had to look downward and take pieces of it to different people at different times. And so it was just a practical reaction, I think, for me, for finding out how do I, how do I do better? How do I learn? Uh, there was more to be learned at looking at the people around me in the organization than it was from trying to, you know, look at, find some other CEO of a, a company 10 times my size and try to learn from him or something like that. It was just a practical way to learn. And so I continued my learning, but my mentors changed over a period of time from those in uh, support, you know, superior positions to me to those in subordinate positions. So the loneliness, the pain of doing that forced you to take a look in a different way because you were getting more isolated at your being at the top. Yeah, I wasn't I wasn't learning. I mean, I was doing the job, but I wasn't growing as fast. And I've just learned if you're not growing and you're not changing and you're not getting better, you're kind of getting behind. The world changes. The world gets tougher every day. The competition gets tougher. So if you're not stepping it up, you're not making it. And I found myself just, I wasn't, it wasn't on, just like on autopilot. I was working hard, but I wasn't getting any better. And I had to find an outlet for an intellectual stimulation to get better. And I found it in the teams that were working for me. Do you see now with people that you're mentoring or working with in other companies, those executives, uh, do you help them see that? Because a lot of times I see people not doing anything. They're just feeling alone and they're not stepping outside their organization or looking for other people. They're just keeping a lot of the problems and challenges to their self, especially as they climb up the corporate ladder. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I talk to people, I talk about that, particularly because, and I talked about in this company, in a company meeting, this company at Pivot 3 is uh, doubling almost every year. And I t- we had a company meeting and I talked to people and I said, you know, it's it's hard for a company to double every year, It's but it's a really neat thing when, you, when you've got that big of a market and that hot of a product, and things are going well. But it's next to impossible for a person to double their intellectual capability every year. So we had to try to figure out how do we, how do I, I mean, it's it's a daunting task if you think of this year I'm at level, you know, a certain level. Next year I'm going to have to be twice as good, twice as good. Maybe I'm a 45-year-old person, and i got to be twice as good in 12 months. I mean, that's you know, a daunting challenge. And so I said, we've got to help each other. We've got to hire a lot of other smart people. We've got to do a lot of things as our, our company's not going to continue doubling if we don't learn how to learn. And so we just, you talk about that and you tell people about it. And how open do you think people are to that message and not, not only open to it, but then taking action on it, because that's the key. 
I it varies. <laughs> it varies. I think the uh, A players and the best people look at that and they start salivating and lick their lips and they think, "Wow, this is a fantastic place to be!" And aren't I glad to be here at this point in time? Uh, some people in the middle think, you know, I'll give it a little lip service. I'll give it a try. Some of the glass half empty cynics say, you know, you know, that's a bunch of BS from the guy at the top, you know, <laughs> just ignore it. Uh, but you've always got, you know, a, uh, spectrum of people. And, and my hope is that over time we, uh, open up more people than we have today. That we get more to buy in. That next year, when we come back and we've doubled again, and I come and say, okay, look, remember last year we talked about doubling? We've done it again. Now you got to do so-and-so. Over time, I'm hopeful that we'll open up more and more of those people because we'll only be strong if our people get stronger. So how do you look at the leadership blind spots and really figure them out as a leader? Because a lot, you know, as a CEO of a company, people are not coming up to you for the most part, and telling you you're doing things wrong because there's an intimidation factor. Mm -hmm. You're their boss. So how do you, as someone at that level, keep yourself sharp and have people point out to you the things that you need to work on and give you the hard truth? I mean, how do you surround yourself with those types of people? And what do you have to do in order to get them to actually give you that information? Well, you have to recruit good people, but then you have to tell them that's part of what you expect from them. You have to say, look, I'm, I don't have all the answers and I'm going, I, I will, I will take us off in a wrong direction from time to time. And you are empowered to grab me and get me by the collar and sit me down. I mean, I've had people that are in my groups that have grabbed me by the collar and said, look, Ron, you're going to sit down in this conference room. You're going to shut up for a half an hour. <laughs> I'm going to go over the whiteboard. I'm going to explain why what you're saying is wrong. You're not going to argue with me. You're going to listen to me for a half an hour. And at the end of that time, we'll have a conversation. Okay, let's go. <laughs> and gosh, isn't that important? Isn't that valuable to have people empowered to do that? But you have to stay open to that. You and then to, you've you got to, to communicate with them. Just that you're open to that feedback and then receive the feedback because otherwise then people won't do that. That's right. Yeah. And you can't cut them off and you've got to listen to them and everything like that. I, in our company meeting in January, the same company meeting, I said, look, you know, we've all got to help each other. I said, I got to learn how to be a better CEO. I'm going to be a CEO and the company's going to be twice the size next year. I got to grow this year. I need your help to have help me grow. And some people were just stunned that a CEO would say something like that. Because a lot of That's times true. the people that are that successful at the end of the tip of the spear have got there because they're narcissistic, they're working really right. hard, and people like that are not open to feedback. They That's may right. say that they are, but they're not. That's correct. A lot of leaders, particularly in the entrepreneurial space, are visionary type people that probably have big blind spots, but then they have something they're focused on that's really right and true. And that thing just drives them forever and they ignore all the other stuff. And that works for a while. But I think to build truly great companies, you have to have that visionary leadership, but you also have to have somebody that is open to grow. Somebody's growing. It's just very, there are just very few people that are just come right out of the box and can go for decades and decades and leading and building a great company, doing the same thing over and over again. I think growth and intellectual growth and intellectual honesty and stuff like that is just very important. So how do you – being on a board mm -hmm. and giving feedback to people that are running the companies, how – take me through that. Like how is that in trying to give people feedback and then have them implement it? It's uh, it, it's hard to be on a board. Uh, and I've done a lot. You've been on a, a lot of boards. And I'll put it in the bio. I mean, yeah. it's a lot. So yeah. we're, we're talking to someone who's been an expert and seen a lot of people. Well, expert. I mean, I've made some mistakes. I've learned of from course. mistakes. Smarter yeah. than the average, maybe. Uh, but it's it's hard because on a, bo on a board, really, the, the board has almost kind of like a barbell type thing. At it, it, one level of barbell, it should focus on strategy, long-term things, pro, you know, some general processes. But then every once in a while, if something's not going right, it has to dive in and say, essentially, the, the one question that the board have is, does, does, do I have the right leader here? You know, and how do I have to dive in? Now, unfortunately, a lot of board members are kind of, meddlers they're they're much more comfortable 
getting into the minutia of how you run a company efficiently or something than they are to sticking to what they need to be, which is, is the long-term strategy right and do I have the right team? And why do you think they meddle? Is it the fear that the people running it won't be able to execute it, that yep. they know better? Or? Yeah, it's, 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 it's part, it's, it's, again, it's back to leadership. When you, when you get to be your first leadership job, all of us, I think, and I, I, I did this and everybody, you try, you immediately think, okay, I'm going to get everybody to do everything the way I do it. And that's the wrong answer. <laughs> you know, nobody is ever going to do things the way you did them. What you've got to get them to do is get them to do things better than you did them and in different ways. And you got to look at that. And how did you learn that first lesson when I, you I, were I, trying to get people to do it your way? Yeah, because I would, I would start to tell people they were doing something some way. I'd say, well, why don't you do it this way? And then they would say, well, no, I'm doing so-and-so. And would you have back and forth? And at some point in time in the conversation, I sat back and thought, wait a minute. You know, the way he's talking about is really better than what I was talking about. You know, and I'm the leader. And gosh, he's he's got a better way than me. But gosh, I guess, I, you know, I ought to go with the flow and do that. That's better for all of us. And then I started thinking, well, maybe other people have better ways to do it than I was doing it. So you kind of detach from your own way of doing. And I think in boards, it's that way, too. A lot of times the board people have operated companies before and they've tried to do it. They've something has worked for them and they're giving you that suggestion, which is great, but they've got to let you run on your own thing. I remember one of the um, most valuable uh, things that I got out of board members uh, was sometimes I would go and say, okay, I've, the company has this challenge or this opportunity and here's the plan we have to do it. And I take that to the board and I'd have a board member say, yeah, you know, Ron, I don't know. It just doesn't smell right. I can't put my finger on it. You know, everything you said was right. I don't disagree with anything you said, but my gut feels just, I don't know if you're, I don't know if that's right or not. I'd go back and look at it a little more. And I found that when I went back and looked at it, maybe a third of the time I found out I had done a flaw. So that's fantastic advice, but the only advice the person gave me was, I can't tell you what it is, just go check your stuff, you know? And so that's what I think on the board member, you try, you have to tell, you try to bring the benefit of your experience and you have to tell the management team, this pattern I've seen before, and I'm uncomfortable that this pattern is optimal. And I can't, I can't tell you what the right pattern is. I can't tell you how to redo it. You know the business, you know far more than I do. But go back and check in the thing. And if you're more right than wrong on those things, that's valuable contribution from a board member. What do you do as a CEO and also maybe as a chairman of a board if you have board members that are more meddlers, that are trying to get into the minutia in order to get them back to helping you more with the strategy and long-term vision? Well, you talk with them just like you talk with anybody else and you try to get them to grow up into the right position and such like that. And if you can't, then you have to change them out. I mean, it's, you know, it, it's, it's funny that you think of changing your bosses, but that's kind of what you had to do at times, you know, because the board is the boss of the CEO. They pick the CEO. And, you know, but sometimes if you do, if the board's not working right, you need to get it working right. You need to get the best out of all those people and such like that. It's another team, and teams have to work well for the organization to survive. If you have bad dynamics on your board, it's going to not work well for the organization. So take, I'd like to know, what talk to us in your career, what has been maybe one of your darkest days and, you know, how you overcame that and got it to get to the next level. Like what, what exactly happened in that? Well, I, I think in the, an easy example is the company, uh, Pivot3 that I'm with now, which is a fantastic company that's doing fabulously well. I was an early investor in this company and a board member. And, um, over a period of time, uh, the company was growing. But it got into a position with the leadership that was in it and, you know, with the leadership of the board where in um, a few years ago it was effectively financially mismanaged and was bankrupt. And it was within days of closing. And so I was frustrated. I mean, I had, I had been a participant in this. I was on the board. I was an investor. If it closed, I was going to lose all the money that I'd put in. 
uh, for my, you know, uh, on the investment. But how do you make, how are you feeling at that point too? Like, is it, it's not just losing the money. It's the feeling that goes along with that. Was it letting people down? Was it, it just? It, yeah, it was letting people down. I, I, I felt an obligation to the people at this company to preserve their jobs. I felt an obligation to the customers to, that had bought from us and trusted us to support our product and stuff on an ongoing basis. Felt an obligation to the financial people and everything. I was just frustrated. And so I dove in to try to do a rescue plan. And the rescue plan in a company like that, when the good thing was about it is the product was good, the technical people were talented, and the market was huge. I mean, those things are hard to get. So how did you come up with the it, rescue it, it plan? Was just, it was just financially mismanaged. And so the rescue plan. Did you come up with it? Did yeah. you ask other people or do you just, uh, did no, you just take I, it? No, I, with with, I did with the team. But I, I led the rescue plan. <laughs> okay. And I had, again, doing turnarounds probably early in my career for Ross Perot. I'd seen one of the things in a turnaround you had to do is you had to establish a trust level of all parties. You had to go talk to all the people. And so I had to go to talk to the bank. I had to go talk to our vendors that we weren't paying our customers that we were slow in delivering things, our people that were worried about losing their jobs. And I had to say, look, here is a plan. It, we can't snap our fingers and change this instantly, but we can change it in two years. And here's how we can be in two years. And if you do these things in two years, I'm going to ask the bank to do this. I'm going to ask the vendors to do this. I'm going to ask the employees to do this. I'm going to ask the customers to do this. And if everybody buys in and locks arm, we'll commit to two things. Number one, we're going to be explicitly open and transparent. We're not going to lie to anybody. We're going to show everybody where we are. We're going to report to them how we're doing on the plan. And we're going to say, if you trust us, let's go month, day by day, month by month. And if we make progress, trust us in two years, we can be out of this. We can have all the money paid back. We can have our company have a solid financial footing, and we can be off and running. And so you've just got to get everybody to buy in on a trust basis, and then you've got to monitor them, and then you've got to execute on the plan. And so we did that, and we executed on the plan, and in less than two years, we finished the plan. We paid off the stuff, all the debt we had, we had paid off. We paid off all the vendors, and, you know, nobody lost a, a penny in the thing of the vendors. It was fantastic. But... It's all about laying out a plan that you can do, being very explicit and open with the people, and being very, very honest and forthcoming about where you are and what's working and what's not. I mean, I went to the bank a couple of times in that two-year period and said, I know I told you that I would get this deal and I would collect this money, but I've got a payroll next week and I just don't have the cash. I need you to help me. And because I had done enough stuff over the time, the banker said, okay, I'll cover you on that one, and then we'll go, you know, and then we got going, and then I, you know, closed my deal, got my money, paid him back, and you develop that trust relationship. And so once you do a plan like that, you execute it. Now, what it does is it gives you incredible foundation. The people at this company, the ones that have been here a long time, yes, they just think, man, nothing can kill us. I know, we know we were in that dark spot, and we know we were in that tough time, and we know Odds were totally against us to succeed, and we did it together. You know, that gives you incredible foundation for the future. So openness, trust, and transparency was the key to getting out of that. And you learned that back in the EDS days I when you were working on the cleanup spot. Absolutely. Was that the person that was leading that and the cleanups that you were working with? Was Did he teach you that at that point, or did you observe that? Or Yeah, he, he probably taught me that. And then another thing I will, I will tell him, one of the best, I guess – mentor of things I'd ever had. He he was a, um, as I said, he was a PhD in operations research, just a brilliant guy. He, he was very, very tough. <laughs> he was very, very, uh, he was a strong ego. He, you know, he would go in and he would, you know, assess situations and he was like a bull in a china shop. He'd go in and say, okay, look, you're doing this wrong. You're an idiot. Get out of here. You're so and so. I mean, he was really, really tough on people and such like that. And that's just kind of not my nature. I'm soft-spoken. Maybe I'm from the South, and you know, and I try to get along. I can tell people right and wrong, but I kind of do it in a different way. And I remember um, one time we, we had been working on 
it was a part of the company that wasn't working well and, and he had been working on it. I'd been kind of working on with it with him and we were supposed to make, go make this big presentation about our recovery plan to this big audience of like 25 people, you know, half of which were VPs in the company and everything. And so we're ready to go. And the day before he says, Oh, I got something else coming out of town. Ron, you go and give the presentation. I said, are you kidding me? I was like 25 years old. You know, are you kidding me? You know, I, I can't go, you know, they're going to listen to me. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. He says, you know, it. you know, exactly. He said, you can do it. And I said, no, they're not going to listen to me. There's not a chance, you know? And he said, okay, look, he said, what would I do? He said, you know me. And I just kind of went into this thing like I was an actor almost and said, oh, you'd walk in the door and say, okay, I'm here to save your sorry asses. <laughs> no, no, you know, go in in this, in this abrasive way. And here's why you're idiots. And here's the five things you need to do. And I'm going to tell you this and I'm going to save you. And you ought to be happy that I'm here. Otherwise you would have lost all your money. This thing would come crash. You know, and I go through this, you know, rant kind of thing. And he's back laughing because I'm kind of impersonating him, you know. And at the end, he says, perfect. He said, just go say that. And I said, Glenn, look, <laughs> I'm not going to, they're not going to take it from me. I'm a 25 year old kid, you know, and I got, you know, I got six vice presidents there. I got all these people. They're not going to listen to me. There's not, there's no, he said, look, trust me. He said, go in there and act like me. He said, just act like me. He said, you just did it. He said, just, just think like you're in a play. You know how I do it. Get away from your own persona of how you feel confident and just act like me in a play and see what happens. He said, I said, it's not going to work. He said, look, if it doesn't work, I'll catch you. No harm, no foul. I'm the one that told you to do it. Just go do it and act like me. And I go in there and I tried that and I acted like him and it worked. I mean, I had these people like eating on my hands. I mean, I was stunned. I had these... You know, 50 year old VP is saying, okay, Ron, if you were here, what would you do about this one? Oh, great advice. Thank you for coming. And I'm just startled. But what it, what it told me was how far from the persona of how I, what I felt about myself as a person and how strong I was, I could extend that range way outside of my comfort zone and get away with it. Now, it's not a license to steal, <laughs> no, but still it, 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 it told me that I can look at people that have different abilities and styles from me and I can pick particular pieces of their style that works in particular situations and I can just adopt that style, even though it's not part of my persona. If it's the style that works in a situation, then I ought to adopt that. And so it was an extraordinarily valuable mentorship lesson for me just to learn that. So we step way outside our comfort to zone. To step way out of the comfort zone and also not just, just step out and also emulate things that other people do that work, you know, and do and on a style-wise and basis and everything like that. And so I think that's applicable to public speaking, you know. So many people don't like to speak in front of big groups and such like that. And because they think something's going to happen and it's going to be negative for them and all. But, you know, in public speaking, just... Look at the best public speakers in the world and copy what they do, you know, and it'll work for you. You know, so it was the act like me was just a very strong thing that I've remembered throughout my career. And it has allowed me to borrow the best of what a lot of people do and to use it in my own work. And model after success. That's what Tony model. Robbins says all the time. Yeah, model, model model people. Why reinvent the wheel? They've That's done right. it and follow them along the way. That's right. And just get the mix that works for the particular situation. If I'm in situation X, I might be very aggressive, you know. And if I'm in situation Y, I might be very understanding and accommodating. And look at the situation and think about what's the situation, what's the challenge, what is the mix of leadership skills that will work best in this situation. And then think of, okay, who has that? Okay, okay, this is what I need to act like in this situation. And obviously over time as you got more confident – you took pieces of what he did, but put your own style with it. Sure. You internalize it and then do it. And so I, I was never as aggressive as he was. But on the other hand, I learned <laughs> to be a whole lot more aggressive than I was. Uh, and it was a, that became a part of me and it became second nature after a while. So let's go back to the EDS days. So what 
led you to the next step in your career? I mean, when did you decide to leave EDS? What exactly happened to have you take the next move? Well, um, as I said, the last few years at EDS, I was uh, a troubleshooter, you know, and so I would fly into these troubling situations and clean them up fast, get them going in the right direction, and then hand them off to somebody else to run. And then I would come back and kind of like the gunfighter, you know, just, you know, blow the smoke off the end of your gun barrel, <laughs> put the, put the gun back in the holster and wait for the next call to go to the next gunfight, you know? And so that was, and so I was learning a lot, but it wasn't very satisfying. It wasn't sad. There was another part of me that wanted to build things, to build organizations, to build people, to change things. And, I Where knew. did that come from? Did that, is it? I don't know. I don't know. I just think that's just part of my persona. That's just something I wanted to do. I wanted to, it wasn't ownership. It was just building and helping people. I, I knew a lot of times when I was doing the troubleshooting, I would see people and I would think, I mean, I, I ended up laying off a lot of people at times, you know, and, and I knew I wasn't perfect in doing that. And I knew I was doing the thing that had to be done. But I would look and I think, okay, if these 25 people, I'm just going to cut these people off. These people are out of here because that was the right thing to do under intense pressure to get the thing righted as fast as possible. But out of those 25 people, if I had time, I knew that six or eight of those people were potential superstars and I just tossed them away. And so I knew I was being long term somewhat ineffective with or inefficient with resources and people and such, and that if I had time to develop and change some of those people, they could be stars later. And so it's just it's part of me that wasn't as satisfying. And so I left to join a, you know, to, to run a startup, you know, with, you know, six or eight people. So going from, you know, running thousands of a thousand people to go six. And, and what led you to do that? Because it's easy to go to another big company because obviously you had a great resume. You were doing all this work. And yeah. you just, was it because you wanted to build the company up? Yeah, I, I just wanted to build something I could say, except I could say, I helped, I helped build that and I helped do it. And I put my stamp on it and everything. That so you was, went to the opposite, sort of tearing some things down. And now you were going yeah. the opposite end of building them up. Absolutely. Absolutely opposite. And it was, it was, it was stunning. I mean, after I almost, after about six months, I almost left and went back to a big company because I was used to, I was at a certain level in a big company. And so when you get to a certain level, the pace of change is fast. You're seeing, it's not that you're taking credit for everybody's work, but the, the amount of things flying by your eyes is fast. And, you know, with an eight person company, I'd, you know, we'd have a meeting, we'd say, okay, what do we need to do? Okay. These are the three top things we need to do. Okay. Everybody agrees. Okay. Well, Let's go do that. Well, no, I'm, everybody was busy, but me. And so, okay, I, they always end up on my list. And so I start going and doing. And so I felt like after about six months that I was just like marching through a swamp with concrete overshoes. Things were, they, they're going in the right direction, but they're going so slow compared to what I was used to seeing. And I was thinking I was a failure. And then one of the things that got me out, I went to some meeting of uh, CEOs of startup companies or something. And I start talking with these other CEOs and I'm telling them what I'm doing and they're saying, oh man, you're a superstar. And I'm thinking, what? You know, I, I, this seems to be going slow as Christmas. Oh no, you're going, fa-. you know, my whole measurement system on myself was wrong. I had to readjust the measurement system. And you did that through support. Yeah. I did it through meeting other people in the same and thing. And getting some perspective from them that mm-hmm. helped you see what was going on in your life. That's correct. That's correct. You get a different perspective and, again, the ability to step back and look at it a little more objectively with the proper lens and I'll make all the difference in the world. And so I dove back in, built startup, and, you know, and so I've alternated big company and small company. Big companies are fun because the problems are more challenging. I mean, the you know, the, the harder problems are the ones that surface to the top. And I like big leadership tasks when you got to lead 3,000 people or something is very different than leading a dozen people. And, you know, so I like that. But I also like the small company thing where we just got our team and everything. The the uh, bonding in a small company is so much more fun. So you led this company and then what happened to the startup? Did it get? Yeah, it was it, it was successful and, you know, we IPO'd and ultimately got acquired. And then I went to another one and another one. And then I... Uh, after 14 years of running startups, Ross was starting his second company, 
uh, Perot Systems, and I went back for another round. At that time, Mark Meyerson was the CEO at that time, and I had been uh, more. So how do you recruit you back? Because obviously that's an interesting story. Like, did he just call you out of the blue one day? Well, actually, the the third company I was running, Mort happened to be an investor in it. Okay. You know, and I'd stayed in touch with him. And when Ross ran for president in 1992, uh, he brought Mort in to be CEO of Pro Systems. And so the company, the third startup, we sold shortly after that. And Mort said, look, I... You know, I've got a lot to do over here. Why don't you come over here uh, with me at Pro Systems? And so I came into there. And so that's how I connected with him. And what, if, what were you doing at Pro Systems at that time? Um, let's see. I had several jobs. I um, for, Kind of depending on our organizational structure. For a while, we had four people that ran the uh, Americas and four people that ran Europe in a team basis. So I was one of the four in the Americas team. <laughs> and then next we went to a um, uh, geographical, uh, excuse me, a functional organization, and I ran sales and marketing. And then we kind of went back to geographical, and I moved over to London, and I was running Europe and Asia, kind of geographical. So it was dependent upon the, um, you know, the organization at the time that I did. So it was it was a great run. A lot of smart people got to do a lot of fun things. What did you learn from Moore? What did you take away from learning from him as a leader? Uh, he's very different than Ross. He Moore is uh, he is creative. He's like a uh, philosopher in the you know who got stuffed into the technology industry or something like that. You know, in some ways a total mismatch <laughs> of the industry and all. But the strength of his it brings the strength of this creative stuff. He he would get enamored of different people outside. I mean, there was this company that we acquired that I worked with him on acquiring that hired anthropologists. I mean, who in the technology, who, who do you know that has ever had a business that hired anthropologists, you know, much less in the technology industry. But what they did is they hired anthropologists to study human behavior, kind of like Margaret Mead looking at the Aboriginal people or something, and try to figure out what people were doing and use that for product development. And, I mean, it's really neat, and it really was – they were really smart people, and it really worked. But I'm thinking, gosh, Mort, how in the hell did you ever figure that out? How did you even consider the fact that bolting on a company of anthropologists to a technology company could make sense? But they would give breakthroughs. They would get breakthroughs. Like one of the uh, national rent-a-car was, was our customer. And they one of the ways the anthropologists studied, they would put literally put up cameras like in the rent-a-car lot, and they would watch customers and their facial expressions as they came down. And, you know, if you go to uh, Hertz or Avis and they say, okay, you got to rent a car and your, slot, your car is in uh, – spot B12 and you go walk into B12 and there's this piece of crap old car and then you look at B11 there's this nice car nice and shiny that you'd really rather have but you're stuck with B12 they pick that up off the TV screen wow and so they came to national they said a big differentiator you can have is let people select their car you know just let people select their car at a certain time you know if they if they say oh there's a new Buick so-and-so, and, and, you know, I've seen that ad on TV. I want to drive one of those, and you just pick the Buick, you know, that people are going to be more happy and more loyal. Anthropologists, I mean, how could you figure that out, you know? And that's one of the things that Mort did, and one of the things I learned from him. He just, he he did not like, like, incremental progress. He just liked breakthrough things, and he would just sit there and try to get new people to come in and new ideas and new everything until he got a breakthrough idea. And, you know, and that's that's hard to do, too. That's very, very different than the driven nature of Ross, who was bang, 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 action, action, action. You know? So how do you think they both got along well? Because they're different styles. I, th- I, I think the combination of the two of them was powerful when they were working together, which they were at EDS. You know, I think they they had some um, ethical basis and business basis that they connected, but they had very different styles. And I think the company was stronger because of it when they both were involved working in it. So then you got to the end of this EDS. What did you do next at that point? Because obviously you decided to leave and go well, out once more. I had – this was – I was so I was living in London in <coughs> the late 90s. And that was when the dot-com time, if you yes. think of all these startups and everything. 
And so I was a senior executive at Pro Systems and, you know, so a senior executive in the technology industry. And I'd, I would have all these recruiters call me. And I mean, the calls would typically be, you know, so I'm over there running a few thousand people and doing all this stuff. And they would say, Ron, you know, we got this startup out in uh, Silicon Valley and it's ready to go public. We've already got the S1 drafted, but we need a senior uh, technology leader as CEO. And if you come over to this thing and uh, can be CEO, within 60 days, we'll be public at a five or 600 million valuation. And as CEO, your share will be $32 million. <laughs> I'd say, well, six months work, $32 million. It's just not you, bad. You got my attention. Yes. You know, what do I have to do? You know, and, you know, and then I'd say, well, tell me a little about the company. Like, what's the revenue? Well, it's really pre-revenue. We've got, a, we had about $30,000 revenue, but, you know, it, it'll come later. And I'm, you know, I'm kind of rolling my eyes and I would say, well, like, okay, how many people, you know, that are in the company? And they'd say something like 17 or something. And I'm kind of scratching my head and everybody in the U.S. was kind of caught up in this dot-com stuff. But when you're over in London, it was just enough distance. I, I, I'm thinking, God, this just sounds crazy. I actually flew to Silicon Valley a couple of times. I'm looking at these things and kind of scratching my head thinking, how can this thing be valued that much? And all, but, but they were, you know? And so, um, what happened was a friend of mine was a guy named Barry Cash in uh, Dallas, who was uh, successful in the semiconductor industry and then a very successful venture capital investor. And so I called Barry with a what's going on type question. And he said, to, to me, his credit, he, he just nailed it. He said, look, they aren't lying to you. That That is happening. He said, it is happening. They're taking these little bitty companies. They're IPOing them for those values. And that's effectively, if you can, if you can sell your stock fast enough, that's the value you would get. He said, now here's the question. He said, we all think it's kind of a scam deal. And it's kind of like musical chairs. How long's the music going to play? He said, if you come along in one of these companies and you IPO it and it stays up, those valuations stay up there for long enough for you to get out of lockup and sell some of your stock, you can make a ton of money. But if you come along, join one of these companies and the music stops playing, this craziness stops you're going to be really sad that you left a big position at Pro Systems to join this company that's probably going to be wiped off the face of the earth. And he said, I said, okay, that makes sense. And he said, have you ever thought of being, instead of just a business guy, a venture capital investor? And that started my connection with uh, joining Interwest, which was the firm where Barry was. And so I joined that instead of taking one of these little bitty companies. Thank goodness, because... You know, it did. The music did stop playing in it, like the spring of 2000. It stopped playing with a thud. Uh, with at the big time. Mm -hmm. so did you enjoy that? What did you learn as your time of being, you know, a venture capitalist? What were that? What was your big takeaways from that experience? Well, um, I think one of the you know the one of the strongest things we were always trying to figure out how do you get giant deals? You know, because there were a lot of deals you could invest in and maybe make a little money. But it, the ones that drove fund performance and all were the ones that were, you know, you'd put money in and, and the company would be worth billions. And so we went back and studied the pattern of giant deals. And we all thought giant deals would be something that when, like, this team showed up at our office to invest in, they would say, oh, we got a great idea. We're going to revolutionize this industry. And we'd all, the light bulb would go on. And we'd all say, oh, yeah, that makes sense. We're going to do it and everything. And that wasn't the pattern at all. We studied the pattern of giant deals, and when you start a company and say, if you say, okay, here's the product I'm going to make, here's the industry I'm going to attack, here's how I'm going to, here's the business model I'm going to use, and that's plan A, and then you go out there and start it, and it kind of isn't working, <laughs> and you think, oh man, this is not working. We got to do something different. Okay, let's do plan B, and you either change the industry, you change the product, you change the business model. If that doesn't work. You go to plan C, then plan B. Okay, these big successes average between halfway between plan B and plan C. So if, if when they showed up in our office, that was plan A, what they succeeded on was halfway between B and C. So to me, it said the management team and the board have to be agile and they have to be open to saying something different. There may be a different way to take this technology and to find a different market and it's not so much of just putting blinders on and executing the first brilliant, what you think is a brilliant idea. It's executing, but while you're doing it, it's looking around 
and seeing maybe I'm not in the right industry. Maybe I don't exactly have the right to, maybe I need to repurpose this. Maybe I need to change this. But it, to me, it was a big, strong lesson about agility. You got to, you got to always be stepping outside of yourself, looking at yourself and looking at your company and saying, maybe, maybe we don't have it all right. Yeah, it just feels like it's working, but is there anything else we could do to make it be twice as fast or twice as easy? That's yeah. fantastic. It sounds just like over your career, it's been this progression of learning and implementing it, right? Because back at EDS mm-hmm. with the anthropologist example, mm-hmm. that was seeing something at a new angle, taking a step back, trying to look at massive lift like you did right here. Mm-hmm. And then how did you figure out when people were coming in front of you, whether they were agile and open, right? I mean, what what did you ask them specifically or what did you do to figure out the people that would have a higher per chance of executing on what you thought at that point was you know going to be a plan b or c in the Mm -hmm. business plan well i think the i think the thing you have to do and this is something you have to do as a leader if your people are going to try you want your people to to try things and to accept risk and to fail some i mean you don't want them to fail but if you're accepting risk, you always fail. Yes. And you, you scramble, you recover, everything like that. And so you have to build, as an investor, a bond with the people of like, okay, I'm on this team. I'm in this with you. We're going to take these risks. We're going to try some things. You know, some are going to work. Some aren't. When they don't work, we stop doing that one. When they do work, we feed that one. And we're going to do this. But you're not going to be perfect. So I'm not expecting you to come in here and go straight to the stars. I, I will bond with you. I'll be in the game with you. I'll be in the boat with you. We're, you know, and you establish that personal trust with them. And that says to them, it allows you to, to fail in a way. If you have to, if, if you're trying a big thing and you stumble, then pick yourself up and go do something else and start running again and all. So I think it's a personal trust. It's interesting at, at um, Pro Systems, one of the guys that Mort had was a guy named uh, Bob Wilson, who was a very creative communications and advertising and such type person. And he came in one day to um, our leadership meeting of the officers and said, you know, uh, I've got a, con- he said, I got a concept called game films. He said, if you think of a pro football team on Sunday afternoon when they play, they don't learn that much. Where they really learn is on Monday when they run the films of the Sunday game and they run them in slow motion and they say, okay, let's look at this play and run it in slow motion. And the other team's linebacker breaks through sacks, the quarterback. Okay. Who missed the block? Who did something wrong? He said, you learn in analyzing failure. And so what I'd like to do is film and business. Some of the things when we fail, so we all can learn from it. And everybody said, yeah, yeah, what a great idea. Fantastic idea, Bob. And he said, okay, great. Now I got your team. Okay, who's going to, okay, who will volunteer to let me film their failures? Everybody, you know, folded their arms and sat down thinking, wait a minute, do I really want to be put on videotape saying, I messed this up, you know, I was an idiot. I mean, oh, I don't know that I want to do. And so he had no takers. And then we there came a time about, <coughs> it was six months or a year later, I think, where, um, we were chasing a big international company to try to make a sale to it. And it was in Europe and I was over, excuse me. I was over in Europe and uh, then we also were chasing its its uh, partner in the U.S. And so two thirds of the officers of the company were involved in this chase. And we worked it really, really hard. And we all did everything we could. And at the last minute, our competitor cut their price by like 30% and just under underbid it, you know, and we lost. And so I was just devastated. <clears throat> I was over in Germany, and uh, so I called Bob, and I said, Bob, look, you know, we just failed. We just lost this sale. Maybe this is one we can film. He said, okay, I want everybody to fly into Dallas immediately. I'll get the videotape guy. And so we all fly into Dallas and they film me and they film me. If you think of 60 minutes when like Mike Wallace was interviewing some swindler and the swindler was lying yes. to it, how they zero in like from his eyes to his mouth, you know, that's the way they filmed this thing. And all of us looked terrible. I mean, I had deep circles under my eyes. I mean, I looked like I had just been whipped because I'd you worked so hard and lost this thing, you know, and all of us said this gritty stuff about, you know, 
I, I did A and B and C, but I just didn't think D was that important. And, you know, if I just worked harder, if I'd just done one more, that might have been the thing that got us over the edge. And the, the reality of this film, I mean, it was incredibly powerful because you had, you had all these VPs saying, I, th I thought I had it, but I didn't cover every base, you know. And we started using that film with orientation classes to let people know that even a VP sometimes fails. And the thing that made it really neat is 60 days later, the company that had dropped their price tried to gain back in negotiations all that they had quit, and they didn't sign a contract, and the customer called us back, and we got the contract. So it was even better in the uh, long term. Wow. But the, the gritty reality of that, and, and that's what I like to, to say to a new employee, you know, that all of us have challenges. All of us have things that we bring that we're going to do well, but none of us have all the answers. And we all had to help each other in doing this. We all had to learn. We all had to look objectively at ourselves and at others. And when we do that, we're going to be a much more powerful organization. So doing a post-mortem is really important, especially in things that don't go well. Right. It's very important. That's when, you, that's when you learn. That's when you learn. Here's the things that tripped us up. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So I know you've done, you know, mergers and acquisitions, and I just wanted to ask you, you know, how do you think, what do you think are the keys of being successful in a merger and acquisition, and what do you think that people do that actually mess them up? Because it's a, you know, in today's world, there's a lot going on in, you know, in, in finance, and so it's one of, I think people would be interested in really getting your perspective on that. I think, I think the... Um the easy things in the in M and A transactions are trying are looking at how do the technologies merge, how do the businesses merge, the tangible things. Those things are the easy things. The hard, difficult things are the intangible things, like the cultures of the companies and the styles of the companies and such like that. Whenever you acquire a company, I mean, you want all of those people. And uh, now maybe there's some idiot there that you don't like that you want to toss away, but essentially you want all of those people. And you envision them all working just like your team works. But they come from a different background, a different culture than your team. And so you've got to be open to merging some things in the culture and the styles, in the processes and the methodology and a lot of these things. you got to be open to do that because you're acquiring the people. I mean, the, the tangible assets like the technology if you buy or if you're buying a factory or something, those things transfer, you know, very well. But, but you also want people. Again, back to this thing about the agility that a management team has to have. You want those people, and you've you got to merge them. And that's, that's the challenging things at mergers, is making those people who, they, they had a company, and they were growing a company, and they had a vision of success at that company. And they, you know, they didn't think, I'm going to be acquired by ABC Company. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, ABC Company acquires them, and they're kind of shaking their head of, wow, I've got, now I've got to adopt a different vision. How do you do that? How do you get the cultures in, especially of new people coming in and maybe they're at an executive level and then the acquiring company has people they've worked with for a long time, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's difficult when the trust factor is different and mm -hmm. cult. So how do you go about doing those things? What steps does someone have to take in order to make that a reality? Because it's nice to talk about it, but most people fail. That's right. I, th I think you have to, the first thing you have to do is mix people up. I mean, you just got to mix people up. I think you've got to find some people out of the company you just acquired and promote them to some job in, in the acquiring company and vice versa. And just shuffle the deck a little bit and mix people up. Let people know that this is a meritocracy right off the bat and say, we're going to take the best of the best and give them the best jobs and they're going to do the most for it. And that is the, the way that, that we're all going to succeed here. And that's a big thing. Secondly, you got to be a listener. you got to listen beyond the thing. And one of the things that I see executives, uh, mistakes they make a lot, is they get impatient and they just don't look in depth. You know, we're, we're, all, we're all vulnerable to a fast-talking person that says, okay, i got all the answers and here they are. You know, and you got to look past that. And so when you acquire a company... You don't want to be vulnerable to somebody that you got to look at what they were doing, and, and yes. you may be doing it a different way, but you got to look two or three levels beneath and see what's the real 
positive gain? What's the uniqueness that they have and how can I use that? And you just got to look deeper and all and touch it a little more tangibly. I That's think. fantastic. A couple of last questions mm-hmm. to ask you. Um, and they're more fill in the blanks. Yes. And so success is to you what? Another, another day to have fun and have some more challenges. Every day on this earth is precious. Every day is different. It's just fantastic. I come to work in the morning. I think, what am I going to learn today? Pressure makes people do what? Uh, good or bad things, <laughs> depending upon how you react to it. Like pressure can make you clarify your thinking. Pressure can make you work harder. Pressure can also put acid in the pit of your stomach and eat you from the inside out. you got to learn how to deal with it properly. So what leadership is? Making people see that they can be better than they are today and enlisting them in a common, common cause to do something great. And then finally, mastery is? Well, I don't think you ever master anything. I just don't think you do. This world changes too much. I don't think you ever master anything. You can get better or worse. My objective is just to get a little better each day at what I'm doing. That's fantastic. Thanks a lot, Ron. I appreciate that. You've dropped a lot of gems and wisdom on the audience today, and we'll have all of those things in the show notes. And you can learn more about Ron at pivot3.com, and I'll have everything in the show notes, all the links. And so thanks again, Ron, for coming on the show today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Enjoy talking to you.